Sean and Meg and the rest of the team, thank you again for leading us. It's great to worship the Lord with you this morning. Um, it's a surreal day. Uh, actually, the whole year has been surreal, to be totally honest with you. Uh, um, I was sitting uh, right over here in the first service, and I looked back, um, and uh, uh, right over here, uh, I can see someone actually sitting. The very first uh, Sunday that we uh, were here at Providence, I was a student over at the seminary, and we uh, came to Providence to visit. We were sitting right over there, and I remember looking up at David and thinking, you know, that's a man that just seems real. And uh, and so, uh, and 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 for all this to happen is a, uh, it's an amazing thing. Um, uh, we certainly believe and feel, uh, I've uh, said this to you many times, that as we looked right and left and we asked the Lord that we felt like he, he was behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. But that doesn't mean that there's not been days to where uh, I felt like Saul uh, in the Bible uh, that, uh, you know, when it was time for him to stand up and lead is uh, they found him hiding in the baggage. And so uh, and so uh, God's uh, God's promises, um, in fact, even the songs, you know, that um, that he's always with us is uh, is so, so comforting. Uh, David has been uh, absolutely remarkable. Uh, you know that of him. Uh, you should know that from me about him. It's amazing the depth of maturity and character uh, that that man has and how gracious he's been. At 1203, uh, on January 1st, he wrote me a text and it said, tag, you're it. And, uh, uh, and I'm grateful. He always has his humor. Um, uh, in in uh, AD 426, uh, at the age of 71, the great pastor Augustine stepped down and he passed his reins to his associate named Cleus. And uh, of course, this pastor uh, was uh, a remarkable man. He was incredibly popular, uh, incredibly influential already in his day. Um, he, uh, this was 1,600 years ago, and he's still influencing the church today in his writings and his sermons. A remarkable man. So when Cleo stood up to preach his first sermon, he, um, he, he walked up, and he was overwhelmed with a sense of just being inadequate. In fact, his pastor for all these years, this incredibly great man, actually was sitting in a great big chair uh, on the stage right before him, and he stands up and Words are failing him, and finally, when words come out, the first thing he says is, "The swan is silent, and the and and this cricket chirps." <laughs> and uh, and I feel that in in some ways, I feel like that I'm going to get up here and do a lot of chirping. And uh, um, you know, he was partly wrong. Um, of course, he didn't say that to say that we're not going to hear anything from this great man again. What he was saying is, in comparison. Um, uh, I feel incredibly humbled. Of course, Augustine, his influence for 1,600 years has continued to shape the church. And I'm just convinced in the life of David Horner, uh, a man who for 37 and a half years has faithfully pastored here, has led us well, has preached the Bible uh, week in and week out, has loved his family, has been faithful to the Lord, and has equipped uh, generations after him to come after him and to take that uh, that place, and on this day, he's uh, he's done that, and uh, and has passed that um, weight and privilege of responsibility uh, to the next generation. And I'm just convinced that uh, David, uh, that that swan is not silent. Uh, that the Lord, uh, through His influence on our lives, and what is written, and what He's preached, and what He will continue to write and preach, uh, will uh, will 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 have a lasting impact. And so I'm. 
so grateful uh, for David. Uh, he was the very first guy to hire me uh, from seminary. And uh, he entrusted me with the task of calling all of our first-time visitors. And uh, that was my job as an intern. And through the last 18 years, uh, he's just uh, placed one more thing on the plate. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to him. And so I just want to say that to you. So if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we come to your word now. And uh, such a unique, special um, thing that we have in the Bible that's been preserved by the power of your spirit, uh, by your will, through the, through the generations, uh, through the centuries, so that we can have a copy of it in our language, uh, in our lap. We are amazed at that. And as we open it up, God, as I pray routinely, I pray that you would help us to believe what it says, that you would help us to understand it, to apply it to our life. And so would you be our teacher? Would you speak through weakness in myself? And as we look at John this year, and as we start here this morning, I ask you for your help and your assistance. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you brought with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 30 and 31. If you did not bring a Bible, there should be one in a seat in front of you or under you. And then uh, if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you as a gift. But we're uh, in John chapter 20. Um, this year, uh, we will actually be in John uh, for the whole year. We'll actually be in it for 53 weeks, okay? Now, it won't be 53 consecutive weeks. There'll be a few series that we'll um, have. Uh, in fact, there'll be a two-month section this summer. Uh, but it's going to take us about 53 weeks to walk through the, uh, this incredible book of John. And, um, uh, and what we're going to do today is an overview of the whole book. You say, well, how are you going to do that? Well, fortunately, John's helping me out in that he places the whole overview in two verses. Okay? And so it's, so it's a great gift. But you know what's true about all of us in this room is if you go to any coffee shop in the world, if you go to any mall uh, where you can buy things and shop, if you go to any stadium where you go and you expect some amazing experience to see something exciting that's going to bring more to your life. Um, if you look into any church or any school or any assembly of people, or even if you look into a mirror, you're going to find people who want more. It's true of all of us. When we live in this world that's broken and fallen, that's not home, there's nothing in this world that can truly satisfy our heart. And so words like richer and fuller and more satisfying and more content, these are words and phrases that we used to describe what we hope will be the rest of our life. What we hope will be our new year here in 2016. And I think this is why John should be so appealing to each one of us as we walk through it this year. It's because your joy, your fullness of life is the author's intent. This is why he put these things together and recorded this. And that's exactly what he says. But it's important, I think, for all of us to know, because we'll be here for a while, not, not now, but this year, right? Um, that uh, John is very different from the other three books of the Bible that we call the Gospels. Okay, The first four books of the Bible, uh, 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 um, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, um, and these, these, these books, as they launch into the New Testament, what they do is they offer us this portrait of Jesus. But the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
they give us a synopsis of the life of Jesus, beginning with his birth and ending with that he ascends into heaven. They're called the synoptic gospels, okay, for a synopsis of his life. But John is very different from those books. In fact, in this book that we'll be studying, it contains no record of Jesus' birth, his baptism, his temptation, the narrative parables like the prodigal son and uh, all these parables and stories. They're not in the book of John. We don't find anything about him ascending into heaven in this book. And so you have to ask this question as we launch into the study is why is John so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Did they all start with different information? The answer is no. They started with a different goal. Okay. I want you to think like, let's just say that you owned your very own Lowe's. Okay. And so, so you have all the tools and all the lumber for any project that you could imagine starting and you owned every single part of it. You get home and all of a sudden something breaks in your home. And so you set out to fix it. Well, you don't bring all of your low superstore home with you. You bring the appropriate tools in order to, 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 to finish the job that you've set out to do. Well, this is exactly what the writers have done. You see, it's not that they had a lack of information and they each had their own little pieces and they kind of put them together. No, they had more information than they could put on paper and they had to choose what their goal was in writing. In fact, if you look at John chapter 21, verse 25, or if you look at the screen, the very last verse in the gospel of John says this, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so John's saying, look, I know more than what I'm putting on paper here. I've seen more. I've experienced more. I can't with Jesus. I slept near Jesus. I was on the mountain where he literally turned on like a flashlight. He was transfigured and he doesn't put it in his book. He was there and he didn't put it in there. And I'm doing this because I have a specific goal. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their specific goal was to give us a synopsis from birth to death to resurrection to ascension. Now, what was the specific goal that John had in mind? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this is ultimately what he's doing. This is his goal, his stated intent. And so he is firing for effect. This is what he intends to do in each of our lives as we read his letter. He owns Lowe's, all these experiences. He says, but this is my task. And so these are the tools that I'm bringing to the game, right? And what we find here is four things. The first thing that he wants to prove, to show, number one, if you want to take notes, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He says that. He says, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is his intent. You see, it's in the book of John that we learn that Jesus is the eternal, self-existent, Son of God who created the whole universe. It starts with a passage that I want to encourage all of us in the month of January to memorize. Our, our goal this year, 
will be to have one passage per month that we memorize as a church family. You say, well, I don't memorize. Well, we're going to memorize in church. Okay, next week, we're going to put it on the screen and we're going to actually practice it together. Okay, we'll read it maybe for a week or two before we actually practice to see how well we do. But God's word says, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. And so it's important for us to memorize God's word. And so the first three verses that tell us that Jesus is this eternal self-existent creator of the universe. This is how he says it. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. A few verses later, we find that, you know, he says, nobody has ever seen God. He says, but God has come to earth and has made him known. 38 different times in the book of John, John records Jesus saying, God the Father sent me to the earth in fulfillment of the promise in the garden to be the redeemer and the savior of the world. You see, you guys uh, have heard me even teach multiple times, even in the last month, right? Is that, is that when Adam and Eve sinned, And God brought that forth the curse upon the earth and upon each one of them. He also included in the curse a promise, the first promise of good news. And that is that there would be a seed, there would be a son that would be born of woman. And even though evil, Satan would strike at his heels, that he would crush the serpent's head. He would crush the head of evil and death and sin. And he would bring us back into a right relationship with God. And 38 times, Jesus is going to say, God the Father sent me to do that. I am the one. I'm finally here. You've been waiting all of these centuries and I'm here. He also says in John multiple times, I am the son of God. Sometimes I am God. I am the son of God. And how he does it is really interesting because he goes back and he pulls from the Old Testament. If you guys remember the story of Moses. uh, Yeah, Moses. (laughs) Uh, Moses is out. He's hanging out with a bunch of sheep in a wilderness. And all of a sudden he sees this burning bush and it speaks to him and it's God. And God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt. I'm going to lead. I want you to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness. I'm going to give them a new land. And he goes, well, when I get there and I say, this is what God told me to do. And they say, well, which God told you to do that? What's his name? And God said, well, this is my name. I am the great I am. And then what this means is two things, really. In fact, it means a whole lot of things. But two things that I want to show you. One is there's an exclusive nature to God, meaning he is the one true God. When he says, I am, what he means also is you're not, right? I am, not me, but him, right? God's saying, I am God. I am the one true God. Apart from me, there is no other But what he also means when he says, I am, if you think about that language, what he's saying is, I am what you need. I am what your heart longs for. You need hope? Well, I am hope. I don't go buy hope from a store and then give it to you. No, I just give you of myself because I'm the source of every good thing. So God says, I am. That's my name. I am. Well, we find in the gospel of John is that Jesus picks up this title for himself. There's one little chapter. I think it's eight. It's a fascinating place. And there's a bunch of people that are all uptight about him. They say, we didn't know who your father is, but we know who our father is. It's Abraham. And Jesus looks right at them all. And he goes, you know what? Before Abraham was, I am. 
And it says they pick up stones in order to throw them because he was claiming to be God. Well, seven different times in the gospel of John, John records Jesus saying, I am, and then he fills in the blank for us. He says, I am the bread of life. Your soul is hungry, I'm the bread. I am the light of the world. You're struggling to, to, to navigate the paths of life. He goes, you know what? I'm the only one that can illuminate that path. I am the door into heaven. You want to get to heaven? You have to go through that door. That door's me, is what he said. He said, I'm the good shepherd. You need protection, provision. I am your good shepherd. And you know what? He says, I speak and my sheep know my voice. I lead him into good places, to good ends, to bless them. He is our good shepherd. He goes on and he says that he is the resurrection and the light. Life, meaning that I rose from the dead. And because I rose from the dead, those who trust in me will also rise from the dead. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the last one, he says, I'm the vine. He goes on, he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, this is who Jesus is within this book. It's an amazing thing. C.S. Lewis looked at these I am statements and these claims of deity from Jesus' own lips that are recorded in John. He says he must either be a Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. Some people look and say, well, he's a good teacher. He's a noble historical figure. And what, what this book says is, no, you cannot conclude that. You see, he either was or wasn't God. He says he is. He either is or isn't. If he is, he says he is. Well, then we need to worship him because he's God. But what if he's not God and he's still saying that he is? Well, there's two options. He either knows that he's not God and saying that he is, in which case he's a liar, or he doesn't know that he's God, but he says he is, which means he's a lunatic. He's crazy. We look and go, oh, poor guy, you know, he needs a Big Mac. No, that, that, and so you have to conclude, and John is going to force us to make that decision. You cannot be ambivalent about who Jesus is after reading John. You have to conclude, I think he's lying, I think he's crazy, or I better bend my knee. Those are your options. Now, it's true that Jesus is not the only person that's ever walked the face of the earth that's claimed to be God. That you can go this afternoon onto Google and you can put in men who claim to be God. And you'll find at least 10, I found 10, 10 living people that are currently today claiming to be God. I want to show you a picture of one of them. This is not a joke. This is literally a picture of one. Okay, His name is Henry Cristo. He believes that he's the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. He has a following that worship him. He's got a harem of women to, to, to care for him and to feed him and to, and to be with him. And, and, and he is today in Brazil claiming to be God. And you say, well, that puts Jesus into an interesting category, doesn't it? Because Jesus and this man and all the others who have claimed to be God, they literally fit into at least one category together. And that is people that have walked the earth that said, I'm God. And so what John does is he helps us to identify to say, well, but this one's a little different. In fact, it's a lot different from all the rest. And this is point number two that we find is that Jesus did extraordinary signs to prove his unique authority. He says this in verse 30. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written here, but these have been written 
In other words, what, Jesus, what, what John is doing is he's trying to prove that Jesus did miracles that no one else has ever done on the earth. Jesus did miracles, and when he did, in multiple chapters, we'll find his followers acknowledging that that was a miracle. We'll also find crowds of people acknowledging that that was a miracle. Crowds that were still alive and that could validate when John was written or could invalidate. There were people at the feeding of 5,000 that are recorded in this book who would have still been alive when John wrote this letter that was passed out among the people to say, you know what, I was there. That didn't go down that way. Crowds acknowledged it. But you know who else acknowledged it is his enemies. People that resented the fact that they were happening, but they couldn't say anything because they're like, well, that guy just rose from the dead at Jesus' command. We've got to do something with that. I'll tell you, well, let's arrest him. Arrest a man that just spoke a dead man back to life. And that's exactly what we're going to find is Jesus did things that no one else has ever done. Just like there were seven I am statements, there's seven miracles in the book of John that are recorded. Now that he did many more miracles, but he chose these seven specifically to show that Jesus Christ has a unique authority over a different realm of the created order. And so we're going to find that he has authority over water. He has authority over food. He has authority over wind and of the waves of the sea. He has authority to literally take cells of the human body and regenerate them back to life. That he has authority to take someone's nervous system that is totally broken down and restore it to complete fullness and healing. That this man has authority literally over gravity. That he has authority over the density of water. And that he has authority over death. His body of work is unlike any other. We talk a lot about this body of work in sports where people have to choose a team or two teams or multiple teams to enter into the tournament. So they line up all the teams and their record, but then they also look at who they played and how well they played in those games and all all these other circumstances in order to conclude and make a decision over whose body of work is more impressive to be able to be involved in this game. And the gospel of John is John saying, this is this man's body of work. There may be more than one person who's walked this earth that said, I'm God. Let's line them up and see their body of work in order to help you conclude, all right, this one's the Lord. And that's what he does in the book of John. Jesus does these signs to prove his deity, to prove his authority, but also to generate belief in your heart and mind. And that's the third thing that he's going to do that we'll be seeing this year. Number three is that belief in Jesus is the most consequential decision for every human being. Your belief in Jesus Christ is John's intent. Years ago, when I was a kid, I got a bow and arrow set for Christmas. We got a field in our backyard. Dad set up some hay bales and some targets. And we go out there and we shoot, right? And so long as you're looking at that target, you're, you're, you're aiming. There's intent. There's one day, though, they weren't there. And I thought, I'm going to take it out and shoot. I wanted to see how high an arrow would go if you pulled it all the way back and let it go straight into the air. First of all, it didn't go straight into the air. It went all the way over the homes and it landed in someone's front yard. I was really happy that it landed in grass and not somewhere else. But, but see, that was, that was firing without aim. 
And John does not do that. John has gone to his own lows and he said, all right, I'm picking these things to record. And this is what I'm after is that people who read this gospel will believe this belief. So what we're going to find over this year is that John's going to spend a tremendous amount of time highlighting uh, Christ's teachings and miracles and different stories in order to show us what belief and unbelief look like, what belief and unbelief fear, what belief and unbelief what they love. He's also going to show us through all these accounts and recordings how unbelief is so incredibly grievous to the Lord. And he's going to show it to be the foundation of all of our sin. See, it's hard for us to believe that our belief is literally the sap that runs through the tree that manifests all the fruit of our life. But that's what the Bible says. You you guys hear me pray most weeks when I pray before I preach, God, would you help us to do what? Help us to believe what we're about to read. Now, why do I say that? I want to show you. Because the Bible says that the foundation of all of our righteousness is our belief in what God has said. And the foundation of all of our sin is unbelief in what God has said. You guys remember the story of Moses? Moses is walking around a bunch of sheep and all of a sudden God appears before him. And he said, I want you to go back to Egypt and, uh, and lead the people out. Well, he does. And sure enough, he leads them out. Things are going great. They head to the border of the promised land. All of a sudden they sin and God says, you're not going into the promised land until a whole generation is dead. So Moses has to camp with probably what we think is about 2 million people in a really big sandbox for 40 years. He is the greatest human pastor the earth has probably ever known. Praying for his people, leading his people. Well, they get all the way back to the border of the promised land where they're about to leave this wilderness and there's no water. That's a problem when you got a bunch of thirsty people that are hot and you got little kids and you got animals and people, they start grumbling. God says, look, I'll feed them. This is what I want you to do. I want you to assemble all of them. I want you to take your staff. I don't want you to hit the rock. I want you to speak to the rock. And I said, I promise I will send out water. It'll feed the whole nation. Moses, his anger just ignites. He gathers them together and he takes that staff and he hits that rock. It says that God said, this is sin, and because of it, you won't enter the promised land. It's one of the most devastating stories to me that someone could lead faithfully for 40 years and end poorly. When God wants to tell us, though, the source of his sin, do you know what God says? Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, God shows us what he saw. He didn't see Anger. He says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. You see, anger was the fruit on the branch, but unbelief was the sap in the tree. And unbelief is the greatest of insults to a God that makes and keeps promises. For example, worry is the fruit of not believing that God will be God tomorrow. 
Impatience is the fruit of not believing God's timing is perfect. And lust is the fruit of not believing that God's plan, that it's best for one man to have one woman. You name a sin and you can trace it to some kind of unbelief in what God has said is good for us. You name an act of righteousness and you can trace it back to belief in what God has said. This is why Hebrews says without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's also why the word of God is central and will continue to be central just as it has. When we gather together, we want to read what he says and then make an appeal for us to believe what he says. Imagine how appealing our life would be, how powerful our lifestyles would be, our relationships would be if we literally prevailed in belief. And all this belief in God begins with the belief in his provision that Jesus Christ came to die for sin and rise again. John is going to make this appeal, and that is that the eternity of every man and every woman tips one way or the other on the basis of belief in Jesus Christ. You have to make a decision about this man. The last thing I want to show you that we're going to see throughout the book is that those who believe in Jesus are given fullness of life. What an amazing gift. What an amazing, generous God. He says, in in believing, you may have life in his name. See, we started and I talked about how fullness is something that all of us want more of. And what John says is fullness is directly related to how well you are believing what God has said and who God is. If you want more in life, it really isn't going to come from getting a new truck or going on a vacation or finally getting in this relationship or out of this relationship. It's going to be directly tied to your belief in the great I am who is the bread of life and who is the light of the world and who is the door. This is where life is at. You know, if you think about the generosity of God, we're almost done. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about this for a second. God could have inspired John to write this exact same thing to prove the first three points. That Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Son of God. That he did extraordinary signs in order to prove his unique authority over all things. And that belief in Jesus is the most consequential decision that you and I will make. And he could have written all of that in order to get to the place where we only intensify the regret for not believing. You ever thought that the Bible didn't have to end well for us for it to be true? God could have said, you know what? He is the Christ. He did do signs. You did not believe. And so stop your complaining. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? The Bible says this, is that if we believe in Christ, that the heart of God is inclined to restore goodness that was lost from our own rebellion. Isn't that remarkable? He wants you to have fullness of life. He wants for you to have direct access into his presence and peace from his spirit and wisdom to navigate the paths of this broken world. Jesus said with his own mouth, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And one other thing that we're going to find about this life is not only is it eternal life, but it's also unselfish life. 
It's not just that we get more. We're going to find over and over and over again this thing is that those who believe in Jesus Christ, God immediately sends us out in order to be unselfish with this gospel, to share it with other people so they can enjoy, but also so that we can enjoy. You see, Jesus himself says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And this is one of the most amazing things that we find in the book of John. And that is that John desperately wants for the church to be sharing the gospel, not just so those people can believe upon Christ and be saved, but because he wants for the joy of the church to be experienced and magnified in their own hearts. You see, there's few greater joys in this world than to lead someone to Jesus Christ. And the reason, one of the reasons that we've spent all fall seeking to train the whole church in how to share the gospel with other people is not just so that people will turn and believe and be saved. Oh, God, please help. Please allow that to happen. But it's also because we, as your pastors, care deeply about your joy. And your joy cannot be experienced like God wants it to unless we are being unselfish with the light that has come within our own heart by his grace. He's the Christ. He did signs. He appeals to us to believe in him. And for those who do, they'll experience a life that is better and richer and fuller and more content than we currently know today. This, this is what John aimed at. And this is what he delivered for us. Now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So for those who are here who are going to be serving us, if you would come at this time, it's an incredible joy if you think about that all of this truth, it's put there for us to be able to enjoy. You see, those who have trusted Christ, he's given us a way to remember this rescue, and to rejoice, but also to confess our love for him and to confess to each other silently and yet publicly that we believe in Christ And it's the supper. There's two elements. There's a cup with juice in it. And this is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed. There's also bread, which is symbolic of the body of Jesus that was broken for us. But to take these things is to confess that I know Christ is my Lord and I'm following him with my life. I am believing in him. And so we would ask that if you have trusted Christ, we welcome you to partake. But if you have not yet trusted Christ, we would ask for you to allow these elements to pass. And as these elements are passing, we're going to give you just a few minutes while they're passing for you to do what Jesus encouraged all of us to do, and that is to not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. What this means is we're going to be asking, I'm encouraging you to ask the Lord, God, is there any sin in my life, any known sin? Would you bring it to my remembrance so that I can confess it to you and you can take it from me so that I can take these things in sincerity of heart as opposed to holding on to patterns of sin that we know, but we say, well, I I want both. Jesus says, no, no, no. You got to believe I am the bread of life. I am. And so we want to encourage you to take that time. So if you would bow your head and let's, let's all pray. Chris.